Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome along to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. This is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, which is all about business and biodiversity, the team from Lloyds Bank outlines the role of banks in financing the delivery of crucial global nature commitments. We expect that many more businesses um, by their next reporting year um, will have started to assess and include nature in their sustainability strategies. VLUX Group's Sustainability Director, Jamie Brusby, showcases how corporates can help restore habitats at scale and the benefits they can reap by doing so. This uh, holistic approach is extremely important and and by that I mean not having a narrow focus just on the carbon outcome but building in from the start this view on benefits to people, benefits to nature and, and also the climate. And Space Hive Chief Executive Misha Danak highlights how important smaller scale community-led nature projects are in the global fight against nature loss. Community-led projects put local people in the driving seat and that is really awesome to watch. All of that and more is coming up in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, good morning, good evening or good afternoon, depending on when you are tuning in. You are listening to the voice of Edie's deputy editor, Sarah George, and it's just me in the studio today. So it's going to be a Sarah special. I know this is normally the part where Luke would pop on and call the rest of the team things like the Bonnie and Clyde of sustainability. Um, but it's just me for today and I have lots to bring you up to speed on. So rest assured that we have been busy since the last podcast. Um, we've launched ED24, which is taking place in Central Central London on the 20th and 21st of March 2024. Um, If you're not familiar, you're in with a treat. This is our biggest face-to-face event of the year where we convene hundreds of people working in and passionate about sustainable business action um, for days of workshopping, networking, keynote speeches, panels and all manner of other special features. Um, So do Google ED24 and have a little look at what's going on there. Um, we're also giving away a free pass to ED24. Um, you can you can be in with a chance of winning by taking our new anonymous sustainable business tracker survey on the website, which takes just 10 minutes. So that's been keeping us very busy, as has something that's looming on the horizon even sooner than next March, which is, of course, COP28, which begins in Dubai at the end of November. Um, So something I've been particularly busy with is launching our Countdown to COP28 campaign, um, which will bring you exclusive analysis, blogs, features and interviews, helping you prepare for that climate summit. So that's on our website too. Um, And then something else that has been keeping me busy was chairing our most recent online event, which was on business and biodiversity and took place on Wednesday the 18th. Um, It was great to debate this crucial topic with speakers from Nature Metrics, Planet, 
GSK, Tilda, Holsim and the Capitals Coalition. Um, and today's podcast is really an extension um, of that in, in some ways. Um, our focus for this month will be on business and biodiversity. And we have three great guest interviews, all dedicated to the crucial importance of protecting and restoring nature to serve up for you. Um, but I wouldn't be an editor if I didn't want to give you some key facts and stats to set the scene about just the scale and the pace of the nature emergency that we're focusing. First stat is 75%. The UN estimates that 75% of global land service has been significantly impacted by human activity, mostly for bad. The proportion for ocean stands at 66%. The next statistic is 69%. Wildlife populations have declined by an average of 69% in the past 50 years, according to WWF. And this means that around 1 million animal and plant species are at threat of extinction per the UN's figures. The general scientific consensus is that we are on the verge of the planet's sixth mass extinction. And it's not just plants and animals that are at risk, it is human livelihoods. According to PwC, more than half of the world's GDP, equivalent to $58 trillion US dollars, that is, is dependent on nature. So you'd think there'd be a, uh, you know, a massive concerted effort to um, avert that risk. Um, but the UN estimates that there is a $4.1 trillion US dollar financing gap for nature through to 2050. The finance just isn't being leveraged quickly enough. So to address this, um, this terrible trend, all types of financial bodies need to accelerate their own action and collaborate more effectively. Um, and with that in mind, it's great to segue into our first guest interview of three for this episode, which is with the team at Lloyds Bank. So specifically, I sat down with Katie Leach, Head of Nature at Lloyds Banking Group, and Jenny Barrett, Director of Sustainability and ESG Finance at Lloyds Bank Corporate and Institutional, to really assess what can be done to close that nature financing gap, looking at where financial institutions are um, at measuring um, and improving their impacts on nature. Um, so without further ado, here is that interview with Katie and Jenny in full. Yes, so, so I have on the call with me Katie Leach, who is the Head of Nature at Lloyd's Banking Group, and Jenny Barrett, Director of Sustainability and ESG Finance at the Lloyd's Bank Corporate and Institutional Team. Thank you both so much for, for joining the podcast today. How are we doing? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Real pleasure to be with you, you here today. No, it's always good to um, to see new faces on. And um, I think it would probably bear starting with an introduction to both of you guys um, for our listeners, seeing as I know you both have slightly different jobs, but both really, really fascinating jobs. So Jenny, maybe I could start with you. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Sarah. So I work in our sustainability um, and ESG finance team at Lloyds Bank. Um, so we're a 30 person client facing team um, and our sole purpose is to support our um, corporate and institutional clients um, to be more sustainable. Um, so broadly, this means um, one of three things. So either we're supporting our clients with their sustainability strategies. So providing that external viewpoint, um, undertaking peer analysis um, or advising and educating on upcoming regulation or market trends or best practice. Um, secondly, it could be structuring sustainable finance. 
Um, so enabling our clients um, to access sustainable funds for their green or social projects or um, embedding sustainability metrics um, into, into a transaction. Um, or lastly, um, it could be partnering, collaborating um, on a particular topic or a particular sustainability area, somewhere where our goals are aligned. Um, and I'm a director on the team. Um, I joined when we initially created it, um, which was two and a half years ago. Um, I can't believe it's been that much time um, already. Um, and I lead our strategy and work in the consumer um, in the consumer set because um, I specialize um, in the food, drink um, and retail space. Um, and I also lead our work um, with universities and, and charities, which I'm very passionate about too. Fabulous. And Katie, I understand that you are actually Lloyd's first head of nature. So what does that role entail? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. So I, I joined the bank in, in May this year as head of nature. I um, sit in a, in a different uh, division to Jenny's. So I sit in group environmental sustainability, which is a central function coordinating across the group. Um, and my role is to develop our strategic position on nature. We, we have been building up the team. We've got a team of about four of us now working on nature in this central function and we report into the the chief sustainability officer and my background is a, a little bit different I, I come from uh, NGO background having worked at share action and in UNEP WCMC um, and I have quite an academic background um, in, in biological sciences and zoology that I'm bringing into this role. Fantastic and as you've mentioned Katie I know it's really a time for the company to shape its nature commitment look at this strategically um, really think about how to coordinate that. So what has been done so far? How has Lloyd's as a bank gone about shaping its its new nature commitments and, and strategic approach? Yeah, so this is uh, very topical for us right now. Um, so in, in my role, it's, it's my responsibility to make sure that nature is embedded in decision making right across the group. Um, and that's from the products and services that we offer to the investments that we make. And, and so far, what's been really great since I've joined is, is to see the commitment coming from the top of the organisation, from senior leaders and stakeholders who are, who are really able to, to lead by example and make positive changes. And to that end, Part of that has been around rolling out training on nature because nature is quite a complex topic um, and there's very little understanding of it across the groups. So we're trying to build up that capacity. One of the, the key things that we um, bring out in this training is the fact that climate change and nature loss are inseparable. And this will be something that's very familiar to, to your listeners. Um, they share these direct and indirect drivers and mutually reinforce each other. And with that in mind, when we're developing our approach to nature, um, we're looking at how we can protect and restore nature and how that should go hand in hand with supporting the transition to a low carbon economy. And ultimately, how that helps uh, Britain prosper, which is is our purpose. And so we we want to complement our existing uh, work on on climate. We want to further build nature into our efforts to reach net zero. But we also recognise that there need to be standalone nature strategies to address the other key drivers of nature loss. Climate change is one of those, but there's also other key elements like pollution and and land use change. And as well as um, 
sort of linking to to work on climate, we have also been having discussions around the different language in the space. And we know that our clients are really struggling with the uh, plethora of different language that's being used around things like do no significant harm, around nature positive, around biodiversity net gain. There's lots of a debate and lots of scientific work going on to to really uh, challenge these definitions and and think about um, how we and how our clients might use those in in setting commitments. And one of the things we were really pleased to see is the relaunch of the the Nature Positive Initiative by a number of different NGOs, because we really feel that will help to drive alignment around the use of the term nature positive. Um, and that will be really, really helpful for us. And then uh, just a final point to say around what we're thinking of in terms of our approach to nature is that for us as Lloyds Banking Group, it's really important to think about the different parts of our business from our pensions business within Scottish Widows to our insurance business, but then also to our banking clients and how we might have uh, slightly different strategies um, within those parts of the business. And um, I think I'm going to hand over to Jenny now, who can tell you a lot more about what we're doing on nature from a from a client perspective. Yeah, that is something I wanted to touch on because we we know that strategy is important and this sort of direction and targets are important. Um, but everyone working in climate and nature, it, it, it feels like to me at least, is at the point of saying that that's great. We need delivery on the ground. So Jenny, what does the strategy implementation look like in the real world? What are you seeing in terms of nature strategies and engagement with with your clients? Yeah, so. It, it's clear to see across all sectors um, that nature is very much an emerging and growing theme at the moment. Um, so lots of businesses um, are in their very early stages when thinking about nature. Um, and a lot of businesses um, have not assessed the broader impacts um, and dependencies on nature across their operations and in their supply chains. But, but we know that, um, that businesses you know, hev- heavily rely on and are dependent on nature um, I'm sure many people um, listening to this are familiar with the, the famous statistic that um, more than half of global GDP is uh, moderately or highly um, dependent on nature and its services. Um, so alongside the science and this growing theme of nature, um, plus the recent publication of the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, so nature's equivalent to TCFD, Um, the science-based targets network, so nature's equivalent to SBTI, um, and for example, you know, new policy like um, the UK's biodiversity net gain, and apologies, that's like an alphabet soup of nature-related ESG things, Um, but we we expect that many more businesses um, by their next reporting year um, will have started to assess and include nature in their sustainability strategies, Um, and indeed some will have by, by the end of Um, of their current financial year. Um, But in terms of where we see nature most commonly in um, business strategies is is through nature-based solutions. So for example, like woodland creation or peatland restoration, um, you're you're seeing that be used as as an offset, as a way of reducing greenhouse gas emissions as part of a climate strategy. Um, But where we are seeing specific nature strategies, that there is a real divergence um, across businesses, across sectors, um, because they have different interfaces with nature. They have different nature impacts and dependencies. Um, and as a result, there's a really different approach. 
Um, so I thought I would, um, it'd be interesting, I, I can share some insights um, of these different approaches across different sectors. Um, so firstly, thinking about the consumer and manufacturing sector, um, we're seeing the more developed sustainability strategies um, here include nature in their supply chain mapping work. Of course, for consumer companies, so much of their sustainability footprint sits within their supply chains. You know, the majority of consumer products um, are dependent on nature and its services. You know, for example, thinking about food and clothing, they all need raw materials um, from nature. And therefore, it's vital to consider the location um, and the state of nature at these locations um, alongside the potential negative impacts that the, that the business is having from extracting and using these materials. Um, and the more developed sustainability strategies um, in the sector. So, for example, uh, the food industry, um, we're seeing companies have policies and requirements in place around farmland and um, farming practices. Um, and also alongside this have engagement strategies to support their farmers to more regenerative agricultural techniques to better support nature and its ecosystem services. Um, for another sector, the, the real estate sector and construction businesses, this is much more focused um, on biodiversity net gain. Um, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, there's um, upcoming um, regulation in the UK to increase the overall biodiversity of a new development site and nationally um, significant infrastructure projects. So you're seeing real estate companies when it comes to nature strategies, particularly focus on biodiversity net gain. But, but the more developed sustainability strategies aren't just looking at biodiversity net gain for their new developed sites as per the requirement, but they're looking at biodiversity net gain in their new assets as well. And again, we're not just seeing the 10% policy, but we're seeing more than that. We're seeing 15 or even up to, in some instances, 30%. And then thinking about the construction side, um, the biodiversity net gain requirement kicks in a year later there. But it's fair to say that the planning process um, for, for infrastructure projects has actually included nature considerations um, for a number of years. Another sector to mention would be the utility businesses. So these companies directly interact with nature, unlike some other businesses. And, and leading nature strategies in this place take a really proactive role because they consider themselves almost custodians of the environment. So to bring that to life, nine of the largest regulated water companies own 1% of the land in England and Wales. So they have a real role to play in terms of nature conservation and protection. And you're seeing nature requirements, which um, are underpinned um, by the regulatory requirements that, they regulate, that, that um, exist and also the water, electricity and, and gas acts as well. And there are a few biodiversity um, and water KPIs in the current regulatory frameworks. And in the next regulatory cycles, there is a real expectation for further, more stringent um, nature related KPIs, uh, which will be great to see. And then lastly, just financial institutions. So we're seeing financial institutions embed, as, as Katie said, like what we're doing, you, you see um, them embedding nature considerations alongside their climate strategies. And the more developed um, 
the more developed financial institutions have done materiality exercises where they've identified um, the material errors um, in terms of impacts and dependencies across their portfolios. And then they've created um, those nature specific um, sector strategies. But hopefully that those sort of different insights really highlight the, the huge divergence of what we see in terms of nature strategies um, and approach across the different industries. I mean, that makes complete sense. Of course, there'll be no one size fits all um, nature strategy, um, but more like a, a long term shared vision of a world in which nature is not degraded anymore and which it can actually be um, restored. And Jenny, we mentioned a bit there about food, drink and ag, but I think it bears diving into a bit more detail on that. We're seeing a conversation in the UK at the moment that's really pitting food security and nature and climate against each other, which I know that everyone working in sustainability um, disputes. So how can we essentially get a just transition for nature in agriculture? Can we dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, of course. Um, so through our materiality exercise, um, agriculture, um, unsurprisingly, was identified as a sector where there is real material impact and dependency on nature. Um, so what are we doing? What are we doing to support clients, our agricultural clients? Well, firstly, um, as you as you would expect, we can support by providing funds for nature projects. So at Lloyd's, we have a, um, a dedicated green fund called our Clean Growth Finance Initiative. And this provides discounted funding um, for environmental projects. Secondly, uh, we have a partnership with the Woodland Trust. And, and through this partnership, we provide our agricultural clients with heavily um, subsidised uh, tree and hedgerow planting of up to 75%. Thirdly, uh, we have a partnership with the Soil Association Exchange. And through this partnership, uh, we broadly focus on two different things. So one is a free in-person consultancy service on farm where um, specialists um, support our clients across six different sustainability areas and this is available for a thousand of our larger agricultural clients and within those six different areas three are very much focused on nature so one is biodiversity on farm one is um, water use and pollution on farm um, and the other is soil health and so those specialists support our clients with measuring and creating a baseline across those areas with recommending actions that the that our clients can take and really working together to create a roadmap. And then the other area with the Soil Association Exchange, um, and this is very exciting because we've just launched it re recently, but is a, is a digital version of that of that sustainability consultancy service. So we have a new digital interface via a website and an app that supports across those same six areas. So again, the three nature, the na three nature areas of water biodiversity and soil health. And there's videos on it and information on how to measure, how to baseline, actions to take, um, and also um, possible funding options and um, available government grants for different things as well. And, and then lastly, um, and something that's really important for us um, at Lloyd's in our and client sustainability strategies is is sharing knowledge and expertise so through convening experts and partnering collaboration we can share that best practice and then really support and drive our client sustainability strategies 
So, for example, when thinking about nature and thought leadership, we, we, we've just published a thought leadership article, which is on the ED webpage. Um, so would recommend you to, uh, to take a look. And, and, and that was really to talk to business and say, you know, we have the nature crisis. There are opportunities. There are nature related risks. And um, this is what businesses can think about and how they can act now. And, and, and then in terms of our agricultural clients, we very much have an ongoing regular programme in terms of thought leadership. And just some examples would be, you know, there's a wealth of information on our website, um, which gets updated regularly. We've partnered with Proma and created sustainability fact sheets for our farmers. And then even just the other week, we um, we we hosted a webinar on Farmers Weekly um, alongside the Soil Association Exchange. So, so they're the current things we're doing to support our agricultural clients with nature. Um, and um, watch this space because we do continue to evolve um, and invest in this area. It's a really important area for the bank. Of course. And Jennifer, we talked there about some solutions and therefore alluded to some challenges um, in terms of businesses implementing nature strategies. So you talked about funding, um, knowing where to secure funding and building that knowledge and that insight and that expertise that you've mentioned on. And Katie, I wanted to ask whether those are challenges you see for clients in, in other sectors. So if you had to say, what are the main challenges you see across the board for Lloyd's and its clients in implementing their strategies? Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges that we actually see facing our whole business and actually any large financial institution that's grappling with nature and and the different things that come with it is is about gathering the right data to understand the relationship that clients have with the natural world so we're not saying that there's a lack of data because there's huge huge amounts of data available at uk level but also uh, internationally um it's just that that data is needed in a standardized and a decision useful format and what's really exciting about the partnership that that Jenny's talked about with the Soil Association is that we have access to site level data for a number of our farming clients and that will be really useful in, in helping us to think through their relationship with nature and, and actually supporting us with thinking about the TNFD and, and how we might disclose in line with that. But it also helps us think through what opportunities there are for us to work with our clients to support nature recovery in the UK. So there's lots of different things here, but that site level data is actually really helpful and really pushes us forward in thinking through um, this from a location angle, which we know is really important for nature. Um, one of the other the challenges is not having standardised view of how a company impacts and depends on nature. And that would really be a, a major unlock in understanding uh, our risks and opportunities in this space for us as, as a financial institution. And, and we feel that the TNFD is really helping to address that challenge because their recommended disclosures will help companies and financial institutions start to assess and manage these impacts and dependencies in a, in a standardised way. And we're really looking forward to, to monitoring that progress and hoping that this framework will be a really important step forward that we need to, to make sure that we can integrate nature in decision making. And of course, there's not just uh, that from a risk assessment and disclosure framing, but there's also in terms of target setting. And that is a real challenge for, for us and our clients is, is knowing how to set science based targets for nature. Um, Jenny called out the SBTN, the science based targets network that are supporting that target setting journey for corporates. 
the challenge comes in, in implementing these and, and gathering the right metrics to be able to track progress. So that's something that we're following closely and, and are talking to our clients about. But we also know that there's various scientific assessments that are underway to improve our knowledge of this. The way that businesses interface with nature is relatively new. There is scientific literature around this, but it's developing and work by uh, organisations like ITBAS, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. Um, they're carrying out a, an assessment, a business and biodiversity assessment. And one of the um, I'm one of the coordinating lead authors for this assessment. And what it's really helping to do is bridge the gap between academia and scientific literature and bringing that to decision makers. And hopefully that will inform future developments of things like the TNFD and really help business and finance to, to take action in this space. Katie, I love that I asked you a question about challenges um, and you've come up with, with lots of solutions and lots of positive um, movements. So I, I feel like the um, the mood is that we are starting to see businesses embed nature in their sustainable finance a bit more more broadly. Jenny, do you think that's the case? And if so, what what trends are you seeing in that space? Yeah, so we are seeing nature considered um, more in sustainable finance. As many listeners know, there are there are probably two types of sustainable finance. So one type is where funds are ring fenced for a specific environmental and social purpose. And the other is where the funds could be for any purpose, um, but material sustainability commitments are embedded in them. And across both types, we do see more inclusion on nature. There are numerous examples of, of ring fence funds, so green transactions where businesses have signposted that those monies are specifically for nature purposes. So, for example, they're for biodiversity net gain, they're for reducing water pollution, they're for um, reducing water consumption or just for biodiversity improvement in general. And then on the other type of financing, we, we are starting to see more sustainability linked transactions where there's a KPI on nature and biodiversity. It's certainly not a commonplace KPI at the moment, but for example, we've we've worked with um, you know a, a number of companies across different sectors, and we've embedded nature-related KPIs. So a couple examples: one would be a real estate company, and we work with them um, to embed a KPI around biodiversity net gain. So on an annual basis, they were looking to achieve a different percentage um, across their assets. And uh, we've worked with a food company to um, uh, to embed a target around implementation of their biodiversity action plans across their sites, which were drawn up and created by a specialist third party. So we are, see we are seeing nature included in sustainable finance. Um, and as companies consider nature in their strategies, and as Katie said, create those nature related targets and commitments, um, we very much expect to see more more nature and sustainable finance going forwards. Well, there you have it. It's always nice to finish on a high note. Um, so thank you both <laughs> so much for yeah addressing the challenges and looking at the opportunities, really setting the scene for the rest of the episode. Um, I know you mentioned that your team recently posted a great blog on ED with more information. Um, so I'd encourage everyone who's enjoyed this part of the podcast to go away and read that. But for now, Jenny and Katie, I think that's all the time we have on the call. Thank you so much. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, and you've just heard our conversation with Lloyds Bank. 
The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this new podcast series as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank work with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Yes, a big thank you once again to Katie and Jenny for that conversation. So much covered and I think a really great scene setter for the rest of this episode. So we're moving swiftly on from finance provided through banks to a different kind of finance, um, corporate finance. So we know that ever more businesses are in, in the phase of designing and implementing their nature strategy. Many of them have set nature positivity or nature net gain commitments and are trying to back them up. Um, and it was a delight to speak to someone from a company that really seems to be ahead of the curve in that way. Um, so the next part of the podcast is a conversation between myself and Jamie Rusby, who is the Group Sustainability Director at Velux Group. Um, if you're not familiar with Velux, I think you, you actually probably are and don't realise it. Um, the famed makers of, um, of Windows, um, essentially. So you might wonder what is going on in terms of, of nature. How does that link to that, which Jamie explains really well. Um, and the thing that we're diving into in this interview is Velux Group's commitment to essentially address all of its historic emissions footprint by using nature-based solutions. Um, so Jamie's on hand to really provide some shining examples of how that can work practically um, in the real world and provide some top tips for anyone that's listening and would love to do that at their own business. Um, so here is that conversation with Jamie in full. Yes, so for this next part of the podcast, it's great to have on the phone um, someone who is fast becoming a regular feature on ED, having recently spoken during our SDG online events in September. Um, fabulous to have Jamie Rusby, who is Group Sustainability Director at Velux. Thank you so much for coming on, Jamie. Thank you. Great to be here. No, great to have you. Um, I think we'd probably be best off starting with a brief introduction to yourself and your role for those of those of our listeners who aren't super familiar with with Velux or maybe didn't attend our event last month. Sure. Uh, well, great to be here. Um, I'm the Group Sustainability Director at uh, the Velux Group. And uh, Velux in our name is short for ventilation and Lux for light. And that pretty much sums up what we do uh, as, as a business and our purpose. And connected to that, we have an ambitious sustainability strategy um, to decarbonize our value chain and, and business, but also to capture our historical footprint. And I think we'll talk a little bit about that uh, today. Yeah, that is what I wanted to come on to, because this is quite an ambitious commitment. Um, so as you've mentioned, in 2020, um, the group committed to capturing its historical carbon emissions. So I wanted to get a feel on why the company felt that was necessary and what's really been done so far. I think I mean, we're seeing now it's increasingly evident from both the data, but also our everyday experience that we're we're in the middle of a, a climate crisis and also a, a diversity crisis. So back in 2020, when we set our sustainability strategy, we um, committed to uh, reduce our emissions in line with science. Uh, and for us, that means 100% reduction in our operational footprint, our scope one and two. 
and halving our value chain footprint by 2030, and that's in, in absolute terms. Um, so ambitious decarbonization of the value chain, and we know that is essential for all, all businesses. Um, we also know that we've, we've left it so long as a society um, to get on this journey that we now need to invest in solutions that um, remove carbon from the atmosphere and, uh, and to do so in a way that actually benefits nature. So that's where our commitment to go beyond the, the value chain came from. And we decided we would capture the equivalent of our historical emissions from our operations. So that's scope one and two. And that's a total of around uh, four and a half million tonnes of, of CO2. And I understand that the, the company is looking at nature-based carbon capture for this, um, predominantly in partnership with, with WWF. So what's been going on so far and, and what happens next? Exactly. So I think that is that is really the, the, the first step that, that we needed to take was finding the right partner for um for this work and and also finding the the high integrity projects um that can help us deliver our commitment. So as you say, we've decided to um to work with WWF and we've decided to um invest in in forest projects in parts of the world that are most rich in in biodiversity. Uh, so since we launched the commitment, we've we've built that strong working relationship with WWF and we've scoped to move forward with projects in Uganda, Madagascar and Vietnam. Uh, our first project is in Uganda and that's been up and running for two years now and starting to show results. Uh, so around um, yeah, just over four um, square kilometers of forest have now been replanted. And this is natural forest that has been um, degraded and deforested um, over the last 10 years to, to a very um, high extent. So that area has been replanted with 180,000 seedlings and that's you know around 15% in terms of the project area that have, has been replanted today from what we will do by the end of the project. And then a, a part of all of these projects is really working with these alternative livelihoods. So providing you know, the, enabling the people who live around uh, the forests to generate an alternative income, so they don't rely on on, on the forest or degrading the forest to, um, uh, to to feed their children and to live. So, we've actually, um, you know, invested in in, in woodlots, so uh, providing you know alternative source of firewood, beekeeping, and you know, 900 uh, beehives have been uh, provided, and then activities like goat rearing. So there's quite a lot uh, happening in Uganda in particular. That's fascinating, and I'm sure we can dig into that a bit more. But something I really wanted to ask, really, is that we see a lot of businesses going for early stage investment in man-made carbon removal technologies, especially a lot of the big tech players, Stripe and Microsoft, for example, going there. So how does Velux see that and why are nature-based solutions really the big focus? Well, I think it's clear now that um, protecting and restoring nature is is critical to solving the climate crisis and if you attended you know climate week uh, you know in, in the last couple of weeks and, and other forums these agendas are increasingly coming together there's recognition that they they can't be tackled separately there's huge potential from um, nature-based solutions to mitigate uh, climate change and actually the majority of that potential sits in forest it's over 60 percent of the potential uh, sits in forests and we know of course it's intuitive you know the forests play a critical role in um, in uh, tackling climate change they act as, as these carbon sinks uh, but now of course what we're seeing is um, with increasing degradation and deforestation the forests are turning from sinks into sources uh, of emissions 
so it is, it is really critical that we act to um, both restore the ability of of nature to provide these essential services to us, but also to, um, to to restore nature. So we increase the capacity to do so. I think with the technological solutions, I think from from our point of view, we needed to act now, and I think we can't wait for some of the technical solutions to be um, proven at scale and economically viable. That makes sense. And as you've mentioned there, these also come with a lot of social benefits that you've talked about there, like diversifying income for local communities. Um, but equally, we sometimes hear um, about controversies in carbon credits in terms of not delivering the social impact they stated and sometimes not delivering the carbon benefits they stated as well. So it'd be great to get your learnings on how Villux sort of shaped its work to avoid some of those pitfalls. And you've talked about things like credibility and co-benefits. Um, so what have been your learnings on actually ensuring that you're delivering um, yeah, credibility and co-benefits as stated? Yeah, I think it's it's totally right that we're getting the scrutiny of um, this type of activity um, so that we 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 lift up the good practices and and provide them as an example for for others to follow. Uh, the, the the learnings we've had is, I think, firstly, the choice of implementing partner is is critical on this one. Uh, we chose WWF because they they have a long history, of course, working with conservation projects, a deep knowledge of you know forest projects, but also they are very um, present in in the countries where the projects are. They, they very, have very strong uh, relationships with the local community and uh, and stakeholders and, and governments at all levels. So they really understand what are the drivers of deforestation in those areas and also what the solutions are and have the relationships to 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 build those solutions. So I think the choice of partner is is very key. Then I would say this uh, holistic approach is extremely important, and and by that I mean not having a narrow focus just on the carbon outcome but building in from the start this view on benefits to people, benefits to nature and and also the climate. Uh, we, we know of in many areas and where we're operating, um, it's, it's the people not having an alternative to degrading the forest that is the cause of deforestation. If, if you look in the case of Uganda in, in our first project there, um, there's been, you know, pressure from um, many people moving moving to the area. There've actually been, um, you know, a, a loss of yield in crops due to climate change. Um, so people have had to go into the forest to cut wood for charcoal and to clear land for uh, for plantations to grow food. So it's actually providing options, and it can be as simple as, you know, providing coffee seedlings or helping with a business plan to get more from uh, from your land, or providing, you know. Um, small options like you know beehives to enable them to start building a business and it's really that type of intervention that will then turn the people who had been degrading the forest into actual stewards of the forest so that is at the the forefront and the center of the projects it's not an add-on at the end and I think that is is really the, the critical factor to ensuring their, their success. I absolutely understand that. And we've we've talked there about like climate justice in terms of who gets the benefits of the project. Does it improve their livelihoods or or not? Um, but I also wanted to talk about climate justice in accounting as well as the execution um, of the project, because I understand that essentially the carbon captured from these forest projects 
um, gets to go to the host country's climate commitments under the Paris Agreement, so they can count them under their NDCs, um, essentially. So why was that so so important for for the company to take that approach? Yeah, I think I think it's 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 as you descri- describe it that um, we. We want. We saw the need to go beyond our own value chain and invest in, in these solutions. We we wanted the benefits of the of the projects to um, you know directly benefit the local communities who live there and they're they're you know very much direct beneficiaries of the projects, but also the the resources that, that these countries um, have you know in, in Vietnam and Madagascar and, and Uganda. Um, relating to their forests, we felt the benefit and the carbon benefit should also um, uh, stay within within those countries and be counted towards their uh, NDCs. I would say the th- this is an approach that uh, I haven't seen before, and it it's still actually the the, the frameworks largely don't exist for this type of um, uh, accounting to to be made. So we're we're in dialogue with with the with the governments in in Uganda and and the other countries in order to say how can we uh, make this contribution um, from the WWF Velix projects. Uh, so I think this is very much on on the forefront. But the principle of keeping the you know the the benefit in the country is something we, we felt very strongly about. Um, that said, I think we need um, to scale up solutions that can really uh, be applied to bring more private sector financing to this area. Uh, actually, the we've seen that in, if we're going to meet the climate goals and hold biodiversity loss, we need to more than double annual funding going to nature-based solutions. So we need more examples of companies like Velux, who I think will take this type of approach, but we also need to um, quickly establish a credible framework for more com- more companies in the private sector to invest in a in a credible way. Yeah, that makes complete sense. The architecture of, of markets is really what can help or hinder that finance. But hopefully um, what you've mentioned, Jamie, will give our listeners some great top tips and some inspiration to get started on their own journey in this. So thank you so much for sharing all of those insights with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great. Well, a huge thank you once again to Jamie for his time and for showcasing that great case study. We're often told that action breeds action and that what compels a lot of businesses to finally take the next step is seeing a similar project that is up and running and working. So hopefully that inspired all of you listening as much as it did for me. This is usually the part of the podcast, I will be honest, where I'd usually bring in Luke and Matt and hopefully Jade and host a quiz or another um, or another fun feature. So it does feel um, a bit quiet in here. Instead, I'm going to have to roll straight into our third and final interview. We've talked about finance from banks. We've talked about corporate finance. We've talked about some big global movements and some, some really landscape scale projects. But we all know that nature is a super local issue, um, unlike carbon. And there are, there are also questions not only of reaching those big global or even national conservation and restoration targets, but also looking at things like nature access and community benefit. Um, So with that in mind, it was a pleasure to speak with Misha Danak, who is the chief executive of Space Hive for our last interview in this episode. And she explains Space Hive better than I ever could. But essentially, it's a funding platform that enables 
um, investment in community-led projects and they've really seen a big uptick in the listing of projects relating to nature. So whether that is allotments, community green spaces, um, gardens or even infrastructure for, for bees. I think I also saw hedgehog highways mentioned which sounds extremely adorable. Um, so Misha is on hand for you, really to explain how these smaller, more local projects fit in with these global efforts and what we can do to support them properly at this challenging economic time. So without further ado, here is the interview with Misha in full. Yes, so for this next part of the pod, as we will have just mentioned in the studio, I'm delighted to have Misha Danak on the call. She is CEO at Space Hive and here to talk about why it's so important to support not just big scale nature projects overseas, but also local community projects and how we can effectively fund those. So Misha, thank you so much for your time. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. No, thank you so much for for sparing the time. I want to just get straight into it um, because I'm sure we'll have some listeners who are not quite familiar with Space Hive. So could we please have a quick introduction to start us off? Yes. Um, Space Hive is a fundraising platform for community projects. And over the past few years, um, we've helped raise nearly £30 million to support locally led ideas. We work with individuals, community groups, social enterprises to help them raise the funds that they need to improve their local areas with ideas ranging from future proofing community buildings, creating city farms, sprucing up playgrounds or disused parts of land, um, environmental education projects, enhancing green spaces, rewilding. Um, and, you know, we we believe passionately that local people have the best ideas about what's needed to make their communities better. But due to lack of funding, um, resources or, or, you know, confidence or, or previous experience, they can often feel locked out of creating that action before they've even started. So our platform is designed to guide people through the process of fundraising, but also, and this is where the magic happens, connect these local community projects with our network of partner organisations, which is made up of businesses, councils, foundations um, that have up to currently six million pounds of available funding to support community projects. So many great projects going on there. And I wanted to single in on some of those ones that you mentioned that would really help nature, like local parks, um, like local habitats, like nature friendly farming. Um, I'm sure we've all heard that interest in connecting with nature has sort of increased over the past couple of years, primarily because of COVID lockdown. So have you been seeing an interest in fundraising for these types of products um, increasing? Yes, we have massively. And One of the things that is most inspiring about what I do, and and really I feel privileged to witness it actually, is that the type of projects that we see on Space Hive really can act as this fascinating kind of barometer of the mood of the nation, because the ideas coming forward are always innovative and creative solutions to the challenges we as a country are facing. So, as, as you rightly said, in, in 2020, we saw a massive spike in projects about outdoor spaces because access to outdoor space was something that we suddenly all really needed but couldn't equally access. 
And so more recently, communities have rightly been concerned about the cost of living, about rising energy costs and about the climate crisis. And therefore, the projects we see coming forward now reflect these concerns. So over the past year, we've seen um, a 25 percent increase in rewilding projects. So local communities are taking over otherwise neglected land, um, creating green new green public spaces and, and boosting natural biodiversity in those areas and local councils and, and local business uh, and also business at a national level is supporting that work. We've also seen a 40% increase in community gardens, which serve as brilliant social hubs for local people, for produce growing, and also as educational centres for local schools and, and community groups. And we've also seen a massive 300% increase in solar projects. And, um, you know, we've had a huge number of community centres, schools, village halls that are putting solar panels on their roofs to improve their energy supply, obviously save money um, up to 50 percent in some cases and, and sell excess energy back to the grid. And a really fantastic example of that is the open air pool in Sirencester, um, which is actually one of, it's beautiful. It's one of the oldest open air pools in the country. It dates back to the 1870s. And yet what they're doing is preserving its heritage by future proofing the building. And they've rallied the local community around them to make this happen, to raise the £11,000 that was needed to do that um, and and create, you know, transformation at, at a local level. Yeah, we're seeing as well in the private sector a lot of looking at on-site solar at this moment in time. And I'm sure we can yeah. talk about that um, a bit a bit more. But I wanted to really as well talk about um, essentially how what, what you guys are doing fits with some of the other stuff we're talking about on this podcast. So we often hear of really big landscape scale projects. Businesses often choose to invest somewhere that seems really sexy, like a rainforest. Mm. So why is it so important to also back these smaller, more local projects? Where do you think that that fits in with some of these larger, further afield sustainability projects? I think there's an important role for both. And it's it's often obviously dependent on the scale and geographical location of the projects. But community led projects put local people in the driving seat. And that is really awesome to watch because where communities are so successful is in creating this groundswell of energy and passion behind a project where people feel they're taking part in something really extraordinary by supporting a project because they're going to personally see and feel the benefits of it in their backyard so yes supporting um you know broader international projects that are supporting rainforests is absolutely something that, that we should be doing but i think there is a special kind of energy that comes from supporting something that you're going to feel and see that the real benefits from and you really can't bottle it and time and time again we see just incredible levels of collaboration to make previously unthinkable ideas happen with with relative ease and um not only do you get the obvious benefits that these projects set out to create in creating these new green spaces, in in rewilding areas that were previously unloved, but you're also bringing people together, creating community cohesion, 
empowering volunteers that come around the project and you create a far greater sense of engagement around these spaces because local people feel that they they have a sense of ownership because they've helped co-fund and co-create them and what our platform then enables is is for local government and businesses big and small to support these ideas to fruition in a way that is far more collaborative than it might have been historically and and what we see with these projects currently on space hive represents a lot of things that are important right now locally led action collaboration tech for good um and community yeah i can i can imagine that and then the other thing we see with businesses as well is just having that traceability and having that ongoing collaboration with the project i think is something that also is really important from the businesses that i speak to in any case definitely and i think you know many of the businesses in the areas where a project creator lives um those businesses may have been around longer than than you've actually lived there so they may well have ideas and tips for your project they 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 may want to get involved and support you and you know lots of business want to pay a part in boosting initiatives like this that mitigate climate change but there might not be an obvious way for them to do it through their daily business practices so for example an accounting firm um can't do much within its day-to-day but they can support projects in their immediate vicinity and and this is a way that they can immediately get involved yeah of course and uh, yeah we live in we are based in Sussex and we're seeing a lot of that around here definitely um yeah yeah. I wanted to come back to though there's something you've said a few times you said that um community funding can really help make projects um that were previously sort of as impossible um, Mm. because of the upfront costs possible um, but we know at the moment that it, it, we are in a cost of living crisis. Um, people have to think slightly differently about fundraising and, and partnerships that involve money. So I'd love to get your advice on how projects can effectively fundraise if they are looking at um, community schemes with an environmental benefit. Will they have to think about it slightly differently than they might have a few years back? Yes, and we, we've been monitoring this closely for obvious reasons um, uh, through the projects that we support, through the funds that we bring on to the platform. And interestingly, the average pledge size has been quite stable throughout the last few years. It's around £20, which suggests that if people can afford it, people will continue to back projects if they see the benefit to them and and to their local area and they can feel you know that they're going to see and experience the positive effects of it but there are definitely um tips and resources that uh we have on on the space Life platform to help people um fundraise in the most successful way so um some of those tips include it's really important to communicate clearly the core benefits of the project and know also your different audiences, which set of benefits will chime most with different types of backers. Some people are going to be motivated by the environmental impact over time. So it's important that you can talk about that clearly. Others will be attracted if there's a future financial saving. Our, um, 
Are you creating something that will make the area more attractive or bring in new visitors? That might make it a project that's more interesting to local businesses that could provide support because they can also see the long term benefits um, for the local economy. Um, and definitely, as I mentioned before, get in touch with businesses in, in, in your local area. And also you can also pitch to the the funds that are available on SpaceHive to see um, whether there is a match in terms of the criteria for those funds and the project you're trying to create. It's also worth saying that 65% of project creators on SpaceHive have never done anything like this before. And yet we have a 94% success rate. Um, so we really guide people through that process. We have a ton of resources that, that can take you through that we verify every project so we will look at whether you need planning permission is your budget realistic have you got the right people around you to make this happen is the time frame you're suggesting uh realistic and that's done by a team who have been looking at these sorts of projects for over a decade um so you're really set up to succeed in in the best possible way Got it. I think those are great tips for not just the cost of living crisis, but any time and any project, I'd say. So a handy little takeaway there that we're unfortunately going to have to finish on, Misha, because I think we're just about out of time. But thank you so much for popping on the podcast and teaching me and our listeners a little bit more about Space High. No problem at all. Thank you for having us. Great. A huge thank you once again to Misha and indeed to our other speakers for this episode. And as always, to Lloyd's for being our podcast partner. Um, I'm recording this on a really wet and rainy day and it can sometimes feel feel hard not to be gloomy, to be honest, about um, about the business sustainability movement, especially with what the prime minister has been up to recently and with the just sort of general um, vibe of anticipation ahead of COP. So it was great to have so many discussions that really focused on positive stories and the art of the possible. Um, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as much as I have. If you have, please do continue to follow our Countdown to COP28 programme of content and events. This will be running until the UN's Climate Summit begins in Dubai, which is 30th of November. That means that our next episode of Sustainability Uncovered, which airs monthly, will fall within this programme. So the whole of November will actually be our net zero November. So in addition to our next podcast, you can expect special editions of Susty Talks, multiple online events, guest blogs, written analyses on the global low carbon transition and so much more. So I thoroughly expect um, to eat, sleep and breathe net zero and nature for the next couple of months. So do join me and the rest of the team on that journey. For today though and for this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.